What a blessing to read God's word in his house this morning. May it have its full effect. Let's read together Genesis 35 and 36. Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves. And change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So we called its name Alan Bacoth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will now give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. And she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. When Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, the sons of Jacob were twelve. 
the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob and were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirikarab, that, uh, that is Hebron, where Abram and Isaac were sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Olabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zebian, the Hivite, and Basemuth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth and Ada. And Ada bore to Esau Elphaz, Basemuth bore Rahu, and Olabama bore Jehush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all the beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Elphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Raul, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Elphaz were Tenim, Omar, Zepho, Gadim, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Elphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek and Elphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Raul, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Olabama, the daughter of Anna, daughter of Zebian, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jehush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs, the sons of Esau, the sons of Elphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Temnah, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gadam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Elphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Raul, Esau's son, the chief Nahath, Sherah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Raul in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemuth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Olabama, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jehush, Jalam, and Korah. 
These are the chiefs born of Olabama, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shabal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman. Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manath, Abel, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion. I, Anna, he is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anan, Dishon and Olabama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezra, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shubal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezra, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chiefs by chief in the land of Seir. These, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of the city being Dinhaba. Bela died. And Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Boraz, reigned in his place. Jobab died. And Hushab, of the land of Temnites, reigned in his place. Husham died. And Hadid, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of the city being Avith. Hadid died. And Salam of Maskra reigned in his place. Salah died. And Shul of Rehoboth of the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shul died. And Balhanan, the son of Akorb, reigned in his place. Balhanan, the son of Akor, died. And Hadar reigned in his place, the name of a city being Pau. His wife's name was Metabal, the daughter of Metrid, daughter of Mezhab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau. According to their clans and their dwelling places, by their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jepheth, Olabama, Ella, Pinan, Kenaz, Temen, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Thank you, Brad. And good morning, church. It's good to be together this morning. I've been looking forward to being in these two chapters together with you. And having Brad read that saved me about four hours of sermon prep this week because they were going to be dedicated entirely to learning how to pronounce those names. Well done, Brad. It was great to have you read God's word to us this morning. Thank you. 
This morning we are coming to the end of part three of our sermon series through Genesis. And we're also coming to the, the last major chapter in the life of Jacob. And just as a reminder, again, next week we are taking a break from this series and we are jumping into our four-part series entitled A Called Church. And we are looking forward to this time together. We would encourage you to join us for all four of these Sundays as we expect God to do great things in our church through our time together, as we do this morning as well. This morning we are looking at, chapter, at Genesis 35 and 36, but we're going we're gonna to focus most of our time on that first section of Genesis 35. Before we do that, let me, let me pray to start our time together. God, we thank you for your word, which is life to us. Every word, life to us. We ask that your spirit would work through your word this morning, fix our eyes on Christ, give us ambition to know him, to follow him, and to find our joy and satisfaction in him above all things. Do this by your spirit, we ask. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, who watched any of the Olympics this past summer? Raise your hand. Okay, great. I love the Olympics. I love the Olympics. And I would not say that I am a particularly patriotic person by nature, but when it comes to the Olympics, I am all Team USA, particularly those, those gold medal matches. I am, I am glued to the TV. I'm, I'm wrapped up in an American flag. I am, I am fully invested in the life of these athletes who, to be honest, I did not even know existed prior to three weeks ago. Right? I mean, I know nothing about Olympic fencing or Lee Kiefer, but when she stood on the podium after winning gold, the first person ever to win gold for U.S. in Olympic fencing, I mean, I am, I'm reaching for the tissues, right? I, I love the Olympics. What I really love about the Olympics is seeing these athletes give themselves fully to something that they love, committing fully to being the best at what they do. And their stories are, are all the more moving when you hear about all the things that they had to overcome, all the sacrifices they had to make in order to get to where they are. I love that when they, when they cover the Olympics, part of that coverage is, is talking about showing videos of the history of these athletes and their, and their families and growing up. And, and they talk much about their families and friends who encouraged them and, and, and reminded them of the goal they had before them and helped them to get to where they are. And so many of these, of these athletes, they have people in their lives who, without their help, they would never have made it to where they are. I heard this one story about a, a runner who, who was running, I, I think it was a, a qualifying race to get into the Olympics. And he was, he was favored to the win. And so he's, he's running this race and he's, he's far ahead of everybody. And at one point he actually stops and he starts celebrating, thinking that he had won the race when in fact the finish line was another 100 feet down the track. But he's, but he's so far in front of everybody, the, the person in second place sees what is happening and in this great moment of sportsmanship actually starts yelling at this guy to keep running. He says, the finish line is that way, keep going. And he, he catches up to him and actually grabs him and pulls him and pushes him across the finish line into first place in front of him. I love this story. I'm 85% sure it's true. I, I saw it on Facebook, so I'm pretty sure it's legit. Um, but either way, it, it's a wonderful story, right? And, and don't we need people like this in our life? Someone who encourages us to keep running. 
who reminds us of the goal in front of us, who pulls us and pushes us across that finish line. We all need help like this, church. And church, our need for this is is never truer than when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our pursuit of Christ, when it comes to our call to follow Jesus. On our passage this morning, it is that type of help to us. And my hope for our message this morning is that through God's word, our eyes are going to be fixed again on the worthiness of Christ and the importance of living in obedience to him and of the reward for those who do so. My prayer is that God's word is going to pull us and push us towards these things this morning and this week. Here's the the main idea of this morning's message, is that our obedience to God is the sovereign work of God and results in blessing from God. And we're going to unpack this main idea by looking at, at two simple points, but two calls from God's word on our lives. Call number one, bury your idols. And call number two, trust in God. So point number one, call number one from God's word this morning, bury your idols. In verse one of chapter 35, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you had fled from your brother Esau. So what we have here is is God is reminding Jacob that he has called him to travel to Bethel, the place where he first met with Jacob. And Bethel was the the land that God had promised his people. It's it's where God had first appeared to Abraham as well, all the way back in in chapter 12. And he, he vowed to make Israel into this great nation. Bethel was where God's people would experience God's favor and would be used to to become a nation who would bless all nations around them. But if you remember that back in, in chapter 31, Jacob had fled from this land, right? Because he had lied to his, his father, he had cheated his brother, he dishonored his family. And so for 20 years, Jacob has been on the run outside of Bethel, on the run from Esau who had threatened to kill him. But then later, in chapter 32, God reveals himself again to Jacob and he, he assures Jacob of his heart to bless him. And in chapter 33, God is merciful to Jacob and brings reconciliation between him and his brother. And so now, there was nothing standing in Jacob's way from moving again to Bethel. But instead of truly obeying God, Jacob travels to Shechem just 30 miles outside of Bethel where God had called him to go. And for 10 years, Jacob has been dwelling here. For 10 years, he's he's living on the edge of really following God, but, but holding back, not quite willing to live in full obedience to him. And we see in this the the danger of living just on the edge of obedience to God. We see the danger of of having the appearance of walking close to God, but at times actually being far from him. We see the danger of taking steps towards obedience, but refusing to follow God all the way. And we see this danger in chapter 34, where we were two weeks ago, where because they had lingered in this land that God had not called them to, sin and the effects of wickedness lingered with them. And Jacob's daughter, Dinah, was raped. 
And Jacob's habit of being slow to follow God resulted in his slowness to come to his daughter's defense. And so his sons instead, in their anger, plundered an entire city, murdering hundreds of innocent people. And so now the nations around them, they want their revenge. And they're threatening to snuff out God's people and snuff out God's promises to Jacob. See, Jacob's unwillingness to follow God all the way had brought with it disastrous circumstances. And of course, God is merciful. He he is faithful to preserve his people even through their failures. And God is kind to Jacob. But still, the the life of Jacob in many ways is a a testimony to how living on the, the periphery of obedience to God can be a costly thing. And church, there are, there are often areas in our own lives where we know that we, we want to follow God more, but we linger. We say, eventually I will get along to following God in this area. But that eventually turns into years, and we find ourselves settling into, into apathy and, and contentment with wavering obedience to Christ. But church, while we are often content to live half-heartedly to God. God is not. And he says to Jacob, Arise, Jacob, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So church, instead of God allowing Jacob to just dwell on the outskirts of his blessings, he says, Remember where you're going, Jacob. Remember who I am. Remember what awaits you in Bethel. God is gracious to Jacob to call him to even greater obedience. And Jacob listens to him. At last, after 30 years, Jacob is finally going to Bethel. But before he left, he knew that there was something he had to do. He had to bury his idols. I heard the story the other day about this man who, who worked at this junkyard and he was, he was digging through these piles of, of scrap metal, and he, he found this small metal cylinder. And I guess he, he thought it looked really cool, so he took it and he, he welded it into a keychain, and he gave it to his son as a gift, as kind of a, a good luck charm. And, uh, and his son loved this keychain, and so he kept it on him at all times. He had it on his backpack, he clipped it to his, to his belt, he carried it with him everywhere he went. But as the weeks went on, his son started developing serious health problems. And he ended up in the hospital on this long extended stay where they determined that he was suffering from radiation poisoning. This metal cylinder that his dad had given him, it was radioactive and had been slowly killing his son. And what saved his boy and potentially the whole family was taking this metal cylinder and taking it as far away from them as they could. I'm sure this thing was buried deep beneath the ground so as never to be unearthed again. Well, church, there are things that we can cling to in life that for a time seem harmless to us and that that for a time actually seem desirable but are in a reality deeply harmful to us and can keep us from much good. And this is the realization that Jacob has when he considers this path of obedience before him. And we see in verses 2 through 4 where Jacob responds to God's call to return again to Bethel. 
So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with them, put away your foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So what's happening here is Jacob is realizing that for so long they have been living on the edge of obedience to God. And now they must move fully towards God in obedience. Not only himself, but also his whole family. But the the problem is, is they've been living with these idols. There are false gods in their camp. And they can't go into Bethel, into God's blessing, into worship of the true God, while all along carrying false gods with them. Now, I don't... I don't know what exactly these, these false gods were, but, but apparently there were, there were idols these people had they were holding on to, placing their trust in, that were depending upon during these past 30 years. And I, I know that in our culture, the idea of physical objects that we worship might not resonate with most of us, but we have our own types of idols, church. There are things in our lives that we cling to, and that we don't want to let go of in order to follow God fully. I think that these verses, these these four verses here have been the verses that have stuck with me the most as I've been in this text this past week. They force me to wrestle with the question of whether or not there are things in my life that I am trusting more than God. Are there areas of my life that I am, in fact, living in rebellion against God? And like Jacob, I need to bury them. I think that that's what God wants all of us to wrestle with this morning in this text. We we want to ask ourselves this morning, are there areas in our lives that we know are just obviously inconsistent with a life that claims to follow Jesus? Are there things that you have been clinging to that you know God is calling you to put out of your life? Maybe it's anger that you've been holding towards your spouse for months. Maybe it's pornography that you know is deadening your heart to affections for Christ. Maybe it's unconfessed sin that you know you need to bring to the light so that it can be dealt with. Or or maybe... You're like Jacob in another way, and you've been, you're living on the periphery of obedience. There's, there's something that God is calling you to do, and you're, but you're standing at the edge of Bethel, and you're looking down that road of obedience, and for, for far too long you've been saying, one day I will head down that road. But for now, you're, you're looking down that road, and you're seeing that it's going to require sacrifice, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be scary. And so you're standing at the edge of Bethel saying, I don't know if it's really worth it. That's really the big question this morning is, is Jesus worth it? See, see Jacob bearing all of his idols, for the, he's not doing it just for the sake of getting rid of the idols. He's bearing his idols so that they can go to Bethel. The call of the Christian life is not just to say no to false gods, it's to make our allegiance to the one true God. And our idolatry is harmful because it hinders our allegiance to God and our affections for Christ. This is why Jacob buried those idols. But of course, 
is only worth it to give up our idols if Christ is really better. So the question we ask ourselves is, is God really worth following? Is he trustworthy? Is he really the God that he claims to be? And to answer this question, let's move on now to our second point, which is to trust in God. Returning to our passage, we we see that Jacob has buried his idols. He's committed now to entering into the land that God had called him to. His his heart is set finally on obedience. And we're we're excited for Jacob, right? He's, He's finally going to Bethel. But there's a problem. In order to get to Bethel, they have to travel around all these surrounding cities. And these cities are filled with people who hate Jacob and his family, right? They remember what Jacob's sons had done in that city in Shechem, and they want revenge. And so now the danger, or the the, the path of obedience to Bethel is a dangerous one. And, And seeing the danger of this situation kind of brings a, a deeper significance to the fact that they just buried their idols, right? Think about this. They are heading towards real danger and the potential of being attacked and wiped out, and they just buried the things that they had been trusting in for the past 30 years. Now, all they have is God. And if God doesn't come through for them, they are going to be wiped out and killed on their path of obedience. And honestly, you know, considering what has been happening in the chapter before, I might not really feel that bad for them, right? I mean, after all that God has done for them, they're still not in Bethel yet, right? They've been hanging on the edge of obedience and, and the response to the evil that had been done in the last chapter. There's indifference to injustice, there's ungodly revenge. There's, there's slaughtering of innocent people. This is a major low point in the book of Genesis. And if they wind up getting wiped out on the way to Bethel, I would be tempted to say, if I was God, you know, fine, let them be wiped out. They had it coming to them, right? But church, that's not how God is. Fortunately, God is not like me. He does not relate to us like we relate to one another. God is a God of grace and mercy, and he protects his undeserving people. Verse 5, as they journeyed to Bethel, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. I love this. I'm not sure exactly what is happening in this verse, but all I know is that God shows up and nobody dares go after God's people. The idols that Jacob had hung on to, they would not have done that for him. The land that they were living in outside of Bethel, it wasn't going to bring peace. It was only when they made themselves vulnerable, when they took the risk of laying aside all other things and trusting in God and looking to Him for help, it was then that they discovered the full strength of God to provide for them. And when they finally make it to Bethel, after 30 years, God meets with Jacob and He says, I'm going to keep blessing you, Jacob. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to fulfill all my promises to you. And you can be confident of this. Why? Because I am God Almighty. There is one Almighty God, church. There is one God who deserves your undivided faith. 
and confidence and allegiance. And as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is our God. Nothing else in this world is worth your undivided trust. Though we try to find things to trust in, right? We, we find things to trust in other than God. Oftentimes our finances or our government or America or ourselves. But when we trust in these things, we are let down, right? If we seek to trust in our government or things getting back to a way that we want from a past We're going to be let down. We're going to be anxious when we see our country moving in a way that we don't like. If we trust in our our finances, we're going to hold tightly to that wealth and we're going to want to avoid living in generosity. If we trust in ourselves, probably the worst thing to trust in, we're going to avoid altogether seeing our need for God. But it can be hard not to trust in these things, right? Living in obedience to God And laying aside our idols often puts us in uncomfortable and scary situations. But church, when we lay aside all other things, when we trust in Christ alone, it is then that he is most glorified in our obedience. When he is most proven to be all that we need. When we see that he is indeed the God Almighty. And having this been what we have seen throughout all of the book of Genesis, right? Where we're coming to the end of part three in Genesis, but if we take a step back and we see that where we have been so far, we clearly see that God is sovereign over the lives of his people and that even though he stum- they stumble, he is sovereign and merciful to bless them. We see this in the very beginning, right? When, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and brought the curse upon this world, God was merciful, And he set into motion a plan to redeem all things. And even when humanity continued to reject God more and more, he was merciful to provide deliverance through Noah, through the ark. And then God chose Abraham from a pagan nation, chose Abraham to bless him and to make him into a great nation whereby all other nations in the world would be blessed And we see God faithfully carrying out this plan through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in spite of all the messes they get themselves into, God proves himself faithful time and time again. This is the main theme of Genesis, that God is an almighty God and that following him is worth it. Now, of course, this does not mean that following God is always going to be easy, right? We see this all throughout Genesis. We see this in our own lives. We see this in our passage this morning. Jacob and his family enter Bethel and and trials follow them there. In verse 18, Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, dies in childbirth. This is right happens. This is the next passage after they make their way into Bethel. And then in verse 22, there's more family tension and sexual sin and abuse. And then in verse 29, Isaac, Jacob's father, dies. Chapter 35 is a a stark reminder that even as we follow Christ and we come under his protection, we, we still live in a broken world, right? The consequences of sin often still linger. The the sorrows of this life continue even as we trust in Christ above all. And we often struggle to make sense of this, right? You know, especially when, when we see those who appear to not trust in God seeming to have a prosperous life. 
We actually see this in chapter 36. And I'm not going to go into all the details of this this morning. Mostly because I don't know how to pronounce any of the words in that chapter. But, but chapter 36 is this lengthy genealogy of Esau and his family and his legacy that came after him. Esau, we remember, is the one who, who despised his birthright, right? He, he despised God's blessing. And even though he, he knew of the true God and he, he lived his life so often around those who followed God, he chose a different path. Instead of joining his brother and entering into the land that God had promised, Esau chose to dwell in the land of the wicked. And do you know what happens to Esau and his family? They enjoy a prosperous life. The genealogy of Esau in chapter 36 is a long line of prosperous people. It ends with a list of mighty kings who reign in wealth and prosperity and power. The people of Esau enjoyed many years of greatness. See, it's possible to reject God and to give ourselves to sin and to despise the life that God has called us to. And life may not immediately just come crashing down. In fact, life often appears to go well for those who reject God, while those who follow Christ often suffer. Psalm 73 is a a wonderful psalm that that helps us to to wrestle with the tension of that reality. David, who who wrote the psalm, is, is experiencing great trials in life, and he looks at those who are, who are living lives of wickedness and rebellion against God. And they appear to be enjoying life, living in prosperity. And David struggles with this. He says in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But as the psalm continues, David sees the path that wickedness leads to. And how temporary prosperity can, can lead to wickedness in the end. And we see this in Esau's legacy. The line of Esau does continue throughout Scripture, as does their wickedness. And this continues into the New Testament as well. Remember the beginning of the New Testament when Christ was born? Do you remember King Herod? That great and jealous king who sought to have Christ killed? Herod was a descendant of Esau. He was one of those long lives of kings, a great man who enjoyed wealth and lots of prosperity. And he ordered that babies be married, be buried as he sought to wipe out the king of kings. In the end, our rejection of Christ, our giving ourselves to sin, our despising God's wisdom, it, it may lead to pleasure. It may lead to earthly prosperity. It may even lead to a type of greatness on this earth. But in the end, it leads to enmity with God. And most tragically, it leads to a life that loses Jesus. It leads to a life that loses the God Almighty, the source of everlasting joy, the, the only one who can truly satisfy the longings of our souls. At the end of Psalm 73, the the psalmist sees the the temporary prosperity of the wicked, but he also sees the end that their wickedness leads to. And he sees that he has something far more secure and more satisfying and eternal. He has the God Almighty. 
And he declares to God in in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Church, I don't know if there's any verse in the Bible that I want to be truer of my life than this one. To have my hope fixed on God above all else. To enjoy Christ more than anything else in this world. That's what empowers us to bury our idols. That's what gives us the strength to travel to Bethel. That's what sustains us through the sorrows of life. It is Christ. He is worth following, church. He is worth burying your idols for. There is joy and life and blessing when we do so. And as we, as we near a close here this morning, there's, there's one last thing that I want to leave us with. Because my hope is that what's happening this morning is God is stirring up in us a desire to follow him more. To bury our idols, to to give our full allegiance to him. That's, That's what I want for my life. That's what I want for the life of our church. And I hope that the Spirit of God is making us excited for that this morning. I, I think that for those who are coming back from, from youth camp this week, I, I hope that God moved in your lives this past week and has stirred up within you a desire to follow Him, to find your truest happiness in Him. And that's what I want for all of us this morning. But I also know that Monday is coming, right? Real life is coming. We're going to go back to our jobs, to the tensions of our families, surrounded by our idols, and it's going to be hard. We are going to struggle to follow God. Because we're just like Jacob, right? Sometimes following God, sometimes living on the periphery of obedience to him. Sometimes clinging to our idols. Sometimes burying those idols. Sometimes digging those idols back up in order to cling to them again. And this all highlights our need for God's grace this morning. I spoke early about my love for the Olympics and my excitement in watching those Olympians win those gold medals. What's so exciting about these moments is that in order to win a gold medal, you have to run the race of your life, right? The competition is so steep that you have to be perfect Often the races, they come down like a hundredth of a second, right? There's no margin for error. If you slip at the beginning of the race, you're done. Your, 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 your regiment, your training regiment leading up to that race, it has to be perfect, right? If, you, if you're lazy and you sleep in one morning and, and mispractice, then you're a hundredth of a second slower and you lose, if you, if you give in and eat a bowl of ice cream a day before the race, you lose. You're done. In the Olympics, you have to be perfect. You have to be the best. You have to run the race of your life or you lose. And this morning, we're talking about something far more significant than the Olympics. We're talking about obedience to Christ and faith in him and our reward for following him. But here's the thing, church. I didn't live in perfect obedience to Christ last week. I didn't run the race of my life. I stumbled. I ran imperfectly. One day I forgot to show up. And can you imagine if God's grace this morning 
was dependent upon our having to have lived a perfect life last week. Can you imagine if our reward, if, if God's blessing was dependent upon our having run the race of our lives and having to run that race every day flawlessly? What a burden that would be, right? Can you imagine if at the end of our lives, God's favor was dependent upon our having tried harder and run faster and done better than anyone else around us? That is a crushing burden to bear, church. And the gospel frees us from that burden. Thanks be to God, that is not our situation. While there is joy to be found in bearing our idols, and there is real joy found in bearing your idols and trusting in God, our ultimate hope is not that we do this perfectly, but that Jesus has come before us and that he has done it perfectly in our place. 1 Corinthians 15 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory in Christ, church. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, bearing your idols, going to Bethel, following Christ. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is our hope, church. It is Christ. He has done it. The Holy One who gave his life on the cross and defeated sin and death and ran the perfect race for us. He is our righteousness. And we are able to bury our idols because we know Jesus. And we know that our sin and our guilt and our shame has been buried at the cross. He has done it for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. He is the God Almighty. He has won the victory for us, and he is worth following, church. Bury your idols. Trust in the God Almighty.